This is Isaka's Page 2 Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Fletcher, and I am a research advisor here at Isaka. And today, we're going to be talking with Bill Malik, the Vice President of Infrastructure for Trend Micro, and the author of Using XDR and Zero Trust. So what do you have to say, Bill? Well, um, good to meet you all. Um, happy to be here and uh, let's have a fun conversation. Outstanding. So tell us a little bit more about your background and, and really what you bring to the table when we're discussing ransomware, XDR and zero trust. Okay, well, um, I've been in information technology for 47 years. So um, <laughs> had a lot of time to uh, study up on this. Um, I began my career with an insurance company in Boston, wrote application program code, went to IBM, uh, worked on OS development for the mainframes in uh, Poughkeepsie, um, left there for Gartner in uh, about 1990. I was with Gartner for 11 years. During that time, I was the uh, lead of the uh, information security strategy service and also the middleware and app integration service. So. Uh, Pretty, pretty deep on the user side, the vendor side, and the analyst side. Um, this century, I've spent my time working for a startup in uh, identity management and as an independent consultant, and I joined Trend almost uh, five years ago. Trend spends a lot of time in information security, and that's been really the primary area of my uh, career since uh, the late 1990s. So. Uh, generally broad set of experience. I, I tell people I've got nine Gladwells, right? Malcolm Gladwell said 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. If you work a 40 hour week, that means five years. <laughs> so now you can know how long ago it's uh, it's been that I've been in this. Um, and by the way, none of us in IT work 40 hour weeks. That's a, that's a myth. It's more like 60. So um, yeah, and I've done a lot of work on um, zero trust architectures and its predecessors. And we'll talk about that. Uh, XDR is actually the fulfillment of a series of uh, initiatives in InfoSec, uh, and we'll get into how that happened. And then ransomware is actually the hottest topic in malware. But if you do a good job protecting yourself against ransomware, you will have done a good job in fortifying your information security architecture and implementation regardless. So it's a really nice fulcrum on which to take a look at a number of issues. We deployed XDR and Zero Trust at my company. It totally revolutionized the way we were doing things and really simplified our incident response. Speaking of those things, what are some of the misconceptions about the degree of difficulty in launching a successful ransomware attack against a enterprise or against a company? Well, first of all, ransomware, if you're familiar with the MITRE attack framework, and I expect you are, Ransomware follows a known set of patterns. Um, it gets into your system using any one of a number of techniques that are also used by other forms of malware. Then what ransomware does uniquely is it will um, encrypt some of your critical information. And then if you don't pay the bad guys some money, then you'll never be able to decrypt that data. At least that's the threat. So it's a form of digital extortion. Now, the specific ways that ransomware gets into your system are the same as anything else gets into your system. It can be 
uh, a bad link in an email. It can be a tainted file that you download. It can be the consequences of visiting a website that's been corrupted. Uh, it can come about through, you know, an, an, a short message that, you know, drops something onto your um, smartphone, which then proceeds to infect your your corporate systems and gets through. So there are a lot of different ways that it gets in. And in fact, different malware uses different techniques, which is why the MITRE ATT&CK framework is so helpful in terms of diagnosing and working towards some sort of attribution where it came from. Uh, but like I said, ransomware does what a lot of malware does. And sometimes it combines a lot of things. So sometimes a ransomware attack will just encrypt the data. Additionally, it may you know, offload the data and threaten to uh, expose it if you don't pay up. They may even go reach out to your business partners or regulators to say, boy, this guy's really not doing a very good job protecting the system. In fact, there's even rumors of a form of malware that will not only do all of that, but it'll also call your mom and tell her that you really aren't doing a good job. So it can be all over the map. Outstanding, Bill. I mean, that was really a neat ex explanation of what ransomware is and how it can affect your system. And it really dovetails well into our next question about the MITRE ATT&CK. So what role can MITRE ATT&CK framework play in helping a company practitioner deal with ransomware threats? Well, MITRE ATT&CK has a couple of different uh, uses. It, its value spans a couple of different uh, domains or activities. But from the point of view of a a corporate security organization that is worried about an active ransomware attack, the MITRE ATT&CK framework narrows down the specific series of steps that the ransomware uh, follows in order to achieve its goal. Uh, every piece of malware has to go through a, a specific well-defined series of actions to uh, get to its uh, result. And it was, uh, I believe, Lockheed Martin that came up with the uh, kill chain. Well, the idea behind MITRE ATT&CK is to come up with a software kill chain. So if you can interrupt it at step three, then whatever happens bad at step six never, never gets there. So by being aware of the bulletins and the MITRE ATT&CK signature, if you will, that a particular piece of ransomware exploits, your organization would be able to say, oh, okay, let's make sure we've got this patched. Let's make sure that we you know, don't allow this particular kind of thing to happen because that's what the current, you know, bad problem is using. Yes, it's reactive. Yes, it's not strategic. Yes, it's tactical. But you know what? It'll keep you out of the ditch. And that's sometimes the best we can hope for in tough times. That sounds like great advice, Bill. So while we're here discussing, let's shift a little bit. And let's talk about zero trust. So how would you explain the rise in popularity of the zero trust architecture? Well, zero trust is an interesting uh, amalgamation of a number of things that arose starting in the mid-90s. I think the reason that it's popular is it's got a really provocative name. Uh, zero trust sounds like, well, if I can't trust anybody, I can't trust you. Um, and it's not really zero trust. What it's saying is we do not want to assume that anybody has rights or privileges merely by virtue of the fact that they exist in a particular environment. In other words, the notion trust but verify isn't enough. I want to verify before I give you any trust at all. And so the first part of zero trust is let's not rely on the notion of a perimeter. 
let's not presume that just because we've firewalled off something or air-gapped something, that it is perfectly secure. The fact that somebody is operating on a particular segment of the network doesn't mean that they have all the rights to all the data on that network. In fact, in a zero trust environment, you'd want to force the individual to authenticate themselves at the appropriate level of rigor to match the, let's say, level of risk associated with the information that they might access in that environment. Okay. So whenever I want to update social media, I go through two-factor authentication. Well, I don't want somebody else putting up posts in my name. Um, so it, it's not enough just to have a, a password. That notion of, of zero trust, of getting rid of the perimeter, has its roots in a group called the Jericho Forum, which held its, I believe, initial meeting at the RSA Security Conference in the late 1990s. Jericho, of course, refers to the Old Testament story of how Joshua blew the trumpet and tore down the walls of the city of Jericho. So the Jericho Forum was, let's, let's get rid of the notion of walls as being a way to protect ourselves. Walls generally don't work, certainly not in cybersecurity. So what we want to do is replace that with a concept of trying to make it hard for the bad guys to get where they're going. So you segment a network multiple times. Micro-segmentation. There was a, uh, an accidental disruption uh, to TSMC uh, about three years ago. What had happened was a tech plugged their laptop into a robotic device on the factory floor. The robots run vanilla Windows 7. Why, you might ask? Because that's the way it was manufactured. And if you tamper with the software, you avoid the warranty. So you have this pool of, it turned out, 100,000 machines. And once malware got from this individual's laptop into one machine, it spread across the entire field in under 40 seconds. It was horrific. Nothing a human being could do to intervene. Now, if they'd put 100 segments into that, instead of losing 100,000 machines, they'd have lost 1,000 machines and 99% of their capacity would have been preserved. As it was, they were offline for more than a week and it hit the GDP of Taiwan. So you want to use micro-segmentation. That, again, is not a new concept. It's been around for a while. When a user enters a system, Zero Trust says, I want to not just authenticate the user, but I also want to take a health check on the device they're coming in on. So I want to see, is the device running a current antivirus product? Are their signatures current? Have they run a scan? Are they relatively current in terms of patch levels? Are there any obvious indications of malicious behavior? And before you're connected to the network, you may have to remediate that. And by the way, that's a strategy that dates back to the late 1990s called network access control. I don't want people on my network unless they prove themselves. So Zero Trust incorporates these ideas. I want to know who the people are. I want to micro-segment the network. I want to enforce uh, network access control. And I also want to take a look at the behavior of users once they're on the system. The fact that you got here doesn't mean that you're going to be a safe actor forever. And so they're going to continue monitoring individual devices to see if a person starts doing something odd or their machine starts doing something odd, like, you know, exfiltrating data over an unfamiliar port or suddenly launching a process that starts scanning data or encrypting data. And so, again, the idea of user behavior analysis uh, is part of zero trust. So it all rolls together in that name. And that's 
uh, a sound way for looking at uh, securing the environment. It's not comprehensive, but it covers an awful lot of ground and it's under one name. Now, zero trust is not a thing you can buy. It's an architectural approach. So if a vendor says they're selling zero trust, their salesperson is confused. They may be selling a particular uh, instantiation of zero trust. They may be selling zero trust network access. They may be selling cloud access security brokers, CASBs. Uh, but zero trust itself is is a, a large and complex thing. And, and this is important from the point of view of your implementation pattern. You get benefit out of every one of these things. Deploying identity management helps. Deploying privileged access management on top of that helps. Using multi-factor authentication helps. Doing metric segmentation helps. You don't need to justify the value of your investment based on one return. There are half a dozen different things that are going to make life better for you by going down that path. And you can stage it, and there are tangible benefits after you complete each stage. Outstanding, Bill. So in your recent article on this topic, you highlighted two key steps to making zero trust principles work well in practice. Could you uh, chat a little bit about those and why they're so critical? Ah, now you're testing me on the two key steps I mentioned. The first would be identity management. Uh, being able to have a good sense of who's on your system and what their actual permissions are. Setting up an identity management infrastructure is a non-trivial task. You can do it piecemeal as long as your default, what you used to call in the mainframe days, UAC, is none, right? If I don't know who you are, then by default, you have no access to anything. So you have to go through some kind of authentication and the level of authentication is going to be risk-driven. So identity and access management is a predicate. The other thing I would look at from this perspective is to make sure that you understand what's on your network and to segment the network, to chop it up, slice it up and put firewalls. It makes it a little harder, right? It kind of works against single sign-on, but your single sign-on group should be risk balanced anyway. One way to think about that is suppose the teller at the bank, uh, you know, you asked to make a $50 withdrawal. They're going to do that. Any teller can do that. A junior teller can do that. But if you want to initiate a six-figure funds transfer, they're going to have to get a senior teller because the permissions associated with that higher risk transaction require a much more robust form of authentication. And so you combine network segmentation with, um, call it sort of separation of duties or a hierarchy of, of trust. And those are the key things that will help you along that path. Outstanding, Bill. I mean, that really explained it well. So while we're talking on this subject, how does XTR fit into all this? We've talked a lot about zero trust, but the second part of your article is XTR. Yes. XTR, again, is an evolution. It comes from the original concept of endpoint detection and response, which means I don't want my laptop to simply generate an alert saying something bad is happening. Uh, there was a rather funny commercial about, you know, alerting versus responding. So EDR, endpoint detection response, combined the fact that we recognize something bad's happening with we ought to take action about that. Now, here's the problem. You put an EDR solution on every laptop in the enterprise and you got 10,000 employees. So now you got 10,000 information sources all broadcasting changes in status. And that leads to a flood 
of information that the security center is going to have to um, triage somehow. Uh, some organizations get 50,000, 100,000. I know of one uh, group that gets a million alerts a day. What we need to do is to say, is there any way we can correlate these alerts and include information from other sources, include identified indications of compromise from network analysis, include behaviors that were known as indications of badness running on servers or running in the cloud. And if you combine those things together and put some reasonable analysis around it, instead of getting a million alerts, you get a few hundred. You know, we have reason to believe that there is a ransomware attack in progress because we've seen these initial steps and it's spread laterally from this system to those systems. And so instead of looking at 100,000 alerts, you look at one combined intelligently correlated event that says this person was at their uh, health club and they downloaded a PDF of next week's schedule. The PDF included a malicious code segment. The code segment spawned a process which then went through the following paths and infected the following other devices, including, by the way, a printer, uh, and then moved laterally to begin. Well, you see what I'm saying. There's a chain of events. There's a sequence, and that can be correlated against the MITRE ATT&CK framework. So what XDR does is it fulfills that larger mission, which is to correlate events, classify them against what's known in the MITRE ATT&CK framework, because that's a common language for talking about this, and then present a story and next steps to the uh, security operations center or uh, managed SOC. And they now then will either take action or you can automate that. And so you'd say, oh, if this happens, don't ask me, you know, just turn off the autopilot, let's gain altitude because we know how this scenario plays out if we don't take the right kind of steps right away. What other elements do you feel add to the success of countering ransomware other than zero trust and XDR? You've covered that in some of your previous explanations, but you know, just to highlight them, I'd say. Well, um, in addition to the technology, and these are technology focused uh, primarily, you want to not ignore the uh, behavioral stuff. One of the things that I've believed for over 40 years in IT is that the user is the strongest link in the chain. If we inform the user and create the right context, then they will take the right action regardless. And let me explain that to you by sharing with you my three questions to determine if your security culture is right. What I'd like you to do is to imagine an individual in your organization, not an IT specialist, who happens to see someone doing something wrong on the computer. I'm gonna ask her three questions. First, would you know if it's wrong or not? Second, would you choose to report it? And third, if you picked up the phone, would you know who to call? Let me, let me unpack those. Would she know if it's right or wrong? That's basic awareness and training. These are the kinds of things a computer should do, and these are the kinds of things a computer should not do. The second one, would she choose to report it? 
think about your organizational culture, right? People might say, oh, geez, you know what happened to Fred? He, he reported a possible security incident. Now nobody's going to have lunch with him, right? Or he ended up being tagged with dealing with that difficult, you know, customer relations situation. Boy, I'm not going to put my neck out there like that. Or you decide, yeah, I'm going to report it. So I go to my boss and I say, I think this is a problem. And your boss says, well, yes, it very well could be. But, you know, they're not in our department and we really don't want to, you know, rock the boat, right? Or the third one. You pick up the phone and call the help desk and say, I'd like to report a security. And so the help desk says, oh, well, let me connect you with physical security. And so now you're talking to the guard and you say, I think information's been stolen. So when did you notice it was missing? Well, it's not missing. It's just, I think somebody took a copy of it. Oh, that doesn't sound like security. If you have people who know what's appropriate, a culture that supports proper reporting, and the mechanism to support that culture, it doesn't matter what tools you deploy because your people will make them work. And conversely, if people don't know what's right or wrong, if they're disinclined to report it, or if the management structure is not in place, then again, it doesn't matter what tools you've deployed because they won't be used. People are the strongest link. You just gotta make sure they, they have the resources to fulfill that role. While we're talking about ransomware, what do we think we're looking at in the next year or two? Is it going to get, be more aggressive? Is it going to be harder to counter? What's the ransomware landscape going to look like? Well, my employer keeps a careful look at incidents. We deal with hundreds of billions uh, of these. I think we had 1.7 trillion in the last uh, calendar year. And so what we've seen, interestingly, is the number of ransomware attacks has dropped. It's gone down significantly, like double-digit percentage kind of down. But what we've also seen is the success of those attacks has tended to go up. And what this means is that the ransomware bad guys have moved beyond what we call the you know, spray and pray mechanism, which is they'll send it out to everybody and you know now... Uh, my mom's computer's locked up and she's got to pay $105 or she'll never get those pictures from when my sister and I were kids. Well, that's that's an incredible amount of uh, manpower uh, to deal with a relatively small gain. So they're tuning their lists of targets. Now, another thing we see is very rarely does ransomware exploit zero days. Fix zero days. Please fix zero days. But don't expect it by chasing the latest zero day or patching everything every day, you're going to fix everything. First of all, it's an impossible task. Most organizations have hundreds, if not thousands of applications. The vendors for these generate patches at a rate of a few a month or even a week. You end up having to devote three or four people to constant patching. And oh, by the way, it's probably a good idea to QA that stuff because what they did in their lab is probably not as complex or frothing with activity as what's going on in your real enterprise. So you put that all together and it's like, oh my gosh, we got to rate manage these. We got to triage these. What kinds of problems do I need to fix? So, you know, you need to be realistic about what you can do to stop this down, but we do expect to see the virulence, if you will, the severity of malware attacks to go up. And so 
sign on to whatever agency is appropriate to your geographical region, CISA out of Department of Homeland Security, publishes alerts. If you can get involved with the ICS Joint Working Group, uh, they publish alerts that particularly pertain to industrial control systems, OT environments, IOT and such. But get yourself plugged in. Consider using a SOC, managed SOC, if, uh, if the workload is, is too tough. Uh, and explore these capabilities. You will be able to stay ahead of the curve. That's great advice, Bill. I know when we deployed our MDR solution, it was really helped us a lot. And probably the only downside was the calls at night from Ireland and Singapore. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's right. We're getting close to running out of time here. I just wanted to ask you, do you have any more pearls of wisdom for our audience here on XDR or zero architecture or ransomware? Well, um, with regard to ransomware, like I said, the pace of attacks is... Uh, slowing, but the virulence and the, I don't want to say targeting because they're still going after hundreds or thousands of enterprises, that's picking up. With regard to zero trust, remember that you get benefits from each component. So don't build your business case to say, you know, we have to spend this much money over this many years and then finally things will be better. No, you've got many of these initiatives already in place. Take a look at your existing portfolio of technology. Every vendor continues to enhance their products. And since the time you deployed that solution, three, four, five, six years ago, they may have added so much function that you may not need to actually buy anything. And your people are already trained on how to use what you've got. It may just be a matter of incorporating the additional functionality into your, into your environment. That, that's a crucial step before you buy any new technology. With regard to XDR, don't look at XDR as being something that's going to displace your SIM. It's not. The SIM will catch all sorts of things that are outside the scope of what XDR does because it's looking at stuff from all over the place. For the point of resolving your immediate problems, XDR can make life a lot simpler, whether you're doing it yourself or third party, you know, with uh, with an outsourced SOC. Uh, but those can help. And as I said, you know, give yourself a break. It's a tough world. Um, people are changing, growing, learning. And unfortunately, uh, the bad guys are people, most of them. Thanks. That's all the time we have. I want to thank Bill for joining us. Brian, it's been a pleasure talking with you and folks uh, hope this helps. Thank you for tuning in. And this is Brian Fletcher from ISACA signing out. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Page to Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode.